Romans chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 25 to 29. The title of the sermon this morning is Sacramental Disunion. So again, I encourage you, as I do almost every week, if you don't get my weekly emails, please see me after the service. Check your junk mail folder. But um, I sent you a couple things this week just from our confession uh, to read over because uh, we're going to talk about sacraments. Particularly, we're going to talk about uh, baptism as it relates to the text that Paul brings us to when he mentions circumcision, but specifically the idea of sacramental disunion. Um, and it, it's close to my heart because when I was being ordained uh, in the Virginia Presbytery, which was notoriously one of the hardest ones, uh, it was interesting, the California Presbytery was the easiest, so we'd always accuse guys of coming over there to get ordained and then transferring to all the other presbyteries. Uh, but I got asked this question about sacramental union. Explain to us sacramental union. Now, what was great is the guy before me got the same question, and I learned what it meant by listening to the guy who just went before me. And I got up there and I said, I think he did a good job, what he said. Um, but sacramental union is a concept whereby uh, we hold true the thing that is being demonstrated and explained, and we speak of it in, in terms such that when I hold that bread and I say, this is the body of Christ, and we say, we, we take this and we feed upon it. it, it the sacrament sometimes gets explained as, as being the actual thing itself. And so in Second uh, Peter, when Peter says it is baptism which saves you, he, he's not saying baptism saves you. And again, it's why it's so important when we study the scriptures. We do like we do. We take it. We take it sequentially as it is given. We take it in context. But even in that stretch, baptism would save you. He goes on to say, not the washing away of dirt, but the promise of a good conscience towards God. And so when I say sacramental disunion for our sermon the apostle here is now in part two of three parts where he deals with the Jewish person who would say, I'm good. All right, so a little bit of context. Um, as Paul opens the letter to the Romans, he introduces himself, talks briefly about the gospel, and then he gets to this verse 16 of chapter 1. Says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and then the Greek and then the very next verse, he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all wickedness of men. And so he ties those together. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so what, what he is saying is, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but also it's the only thing that's going to save us from the plight in the world. And, and so he presents this problem that all human, humanity faces. This problem is the wrath of God. This problem is four-month-old baby girls passing away. This problem is the brokenness in our own relationships. This problem is the sin that Bo helps lead us in confessing. This wrath of God, it's why the world is not right. And so he says, hey, how are we going to get away from that? And so what he does then, as such a, uh, just a, a great orator says, 
Here are all the different ways human beings try to skirt this wrath of God. All right? And so every human being needs to answer that question. What will I do? How will I get away? How will I get from under the wrath of God? Now, now I think it's so important, and I, and I don't want to go back too far, but, but when we started this, I said, isn't it an interesting thing that the Apostle Paul starts his gospel presentation not with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I just want you to know how much he loves you. He starts it with something that makes sense. God's wrath is being poured out. When we look at the world and we see wars, rumors of wars, we see brokenness and we just wonder, why can't we with all our technology fix this, fix that? We put a man on the moon. You hear people say that. Put a man on the moon that we can't feed our kids. Right? That's how he starts. He's like, you've seen it. The wrath of God is being poured out. The world is not as it should be. But then each false solution. So the first false solution that we saw were those who suppressed the truth. Right? We agreed, man, those people do deserve the wrath of God. But isn't that sometimes how we get around the wrath of God? Suppress the truth about the wrath of God? Skip the verses about the wrath of God? That second group, uh, they were the ones who had really set up their own law. We've set up our own law. We've set up a law that we can keep. Right? So when Bo was going through the Sermon on the Mount, the reason we've chosen the Sermon on the Mount uh, to go through for our confession times is because Jesus is doing the same thing, or Paul's doing the same thing that Jesus did, saying, oh, you think you keep this law? You have no idea. That third group, they, they knew the law, they even taught the law, but they didn't keep it. And then we started with this fourth group last week, the Jewish person in culture and religion. So he started off this section, says, but you who call yourself a Jew, all right? So their identity was Jew, right? Their identity and, and what it meant for them to be included in this uh, covered almost everything, what they wore, what they ate, how they spoke, their language, their dress, their customs, their food, um, their, their marriages, uh, all of these rights, every bit of their life was affected by it. And so the apostle then goes to these people, the most probably self-righteous, the ones that are probably most close to us, and said, you who call yourself a Jew, do you think, because you're a Jew, you're going to escape God's wrath? So we, we talked about that last week. So we come now to this other part, which is their circumcision. As, as one author put it, the apostle now pursues the Jew into his last retreat and proceeds to strip them of the last refuge to which they usually betook themselves, their elusive trust in the possession of circumcision. Now, I often say that we as Christians need to make sure that we communicate that our relationship with God is that we are not better better off. What was happening in this circle is they were better. And that's what they were communicating. We are better because we have circumcision. So that's where we pick up. Um, 
this is the second part. We'll take this week and next week to deal kind of with that fourth group of people, the, 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 the Jews. Um, but that's where we pick up. So verse 25 of chapter 2. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <coughs> for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Um, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, we define a sacrament as a holy sign and seal of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits to confirm our interest in him and to put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the surface of God in Christ according to his word we read those words today in our confession of faith the very next chapter says there's a sacramental spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing, things signified once it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. And then I mentioned to you 1 Peter 3, 21. Now, uh, I've said this to you before, but just so you know, this here is my third wedding ring. One wife, three rings. This is the cheapest wedding ring I have bought. The first one, like most couples, was very expensive. Most couples, you should just get one of those rubber ones. Okay, just get one of those rubber ones. Uh, it'll, it'll last longer. You won't be able to lose it. You know, expensive ring is like an expensive pen or sunglasses. Most expensive pair of sunglasses lost the very first time on Grand Lake. And then people told me, you get lake glasses. They're like five, six bucks at the gas station, right? One ring. But what does this ring mean, and, and why do I have it? I bought this ring right before I was going on a sales, a huge, we had a big convention in Las, in Las Vegas, right? And so let me tell you, Christian, what happens in Las Vegas? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Thank you, David. What happens in Las Vegas is presented to the eyes of God Almighty appears before him he sees it nothing is hidden from his sight but I had lost my previous ring hiking with my wife and right before we went to Vegas I'm like oh, I'm going to head to Vegas with a whole bunch of other sales reps I've got to find a ring why? because I knew a whole bunch of other sales reps would leave their rings when they went to Vegas and somehow thinking I, I'm, I'm leaving my ring, then I've left my commitment. I've left what this represents. Um, and I was so afraid that I would get on that plane and they would see it, this guy who promoted Christ and everything, and they would say, oh, see? Yeah, you just like the rest of us. 
Um, so what does this do? It, it, it represents something, but it's not the thing, right? It represents uh, to all in our community that would look around and say, oh, that, that means that at some point he and some old lady made some vows and promises to each other, right? That, that's, that's what it means. And it means he's supposed to act a certain way, right? Uh, and we would all grasp that. But it's not the thing. If I lose it, I'm not unmarried. If I give it away to somebody, they don't automatically get Tammy and all of her benefits, right? And the Jew saw circumcision as the actual thing. This sacrament that was done on the eighth day. One of the other beautiful, amazing things about our God. If you read about the eighth day, right, science uh, tells us uh, that the eighth day is the best day an infant to be circumcised because it is the highest uh, that they will have these amounts of vitamin K, right? So you think about this as a, a Hebrew boy is brought to the rabbi on the eighth day of his birth. He has no say in the matter at all, and he is marked as different as set apart, something that he will see every day as a reminder. You belong to a people because of your birth, because of who you are. Um, if I was to ask you today, how are you sure that you are saved? What would you say? Uh, and um, for a few years there ago, I was I was doing more funerals, um, and often I would do funerals of people that didn't have family or a pastor in town. And and as I would meet with the family and talk about the deceased, um, it, it it was eerie at times. It seemed as if the people were talking to me as if I had the keys to heaven, and they would tell me, "Well, he was good. He did this. He did this. He didn't belong to a local church. She didn't belong to a local church." But they would search their memory to find something to hold on to. He was baptized when he was 12. And I want you to think about that in your own life. What is it that, that when you even feel, if you call yourself a Christian, when you feel that I, 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 I can't be a Christian, or, or you, something comes aware, you become aware of some sin or or something you've hidden for a while and you're just like, I can't be a Christian. What is it that you go to and say, no, but there's this. There's this. Yeah, I've done this and I've done that. Yeah, I've broken my vows to the Lord. Broken my vows to my wife, my family, my church. But there's this. What is it? And for many a Jew, what it was, was circumcision. And so the sermon in the sentence this morning is that we must never let the symbol or the sign replace the actual and effectual. As John Stott wrote in his commentary, it is a grave mistake to exalt the sign at the expense of what it signifies. So in three weeks, I get to baptize my first son, little Matthew Jordan Kuyper. Three weeks, I get to baptize this little baby boy. 
I get to say things over him. I get to claim God's promises over him. I perform a sacrament as a minister of the gospel in a community of God's people on this child. You know what I'm going to do Saturday? I'm going to bury an infant that was baptized. Had God's promises spoken over her. We're going to be with the family and we're going to weep together. We're going to mourn this loss together. I'm going to say, probably as I said in, in the prayer, you know, there's this beautiful thing that our God tells David in the midst of all of his anguish and sorrow. Uh, the child's not coming back to you, David. But you're going back to that child. This little child that wrestled for four months drawing breath and having seizures. This little child that struggled and was drowning all the time. Baptized. Was Olivia saved because she was baptized? No, Olivia belongs to God because she's part of his covenant community and because God has instructed parents, speak my promises over them. And, and Bo and I didn't talk, but Bo talking about Ezekiel. I know it's Scotty this morning in Sunday school talking about Ezekiel. There's such a beautiful text in Ezekiel. When people are blaming God and their forefathers, they have, like we, we're, we're suffering because of what y'all did. That over and over again, God says, Ezekiel, no, it is the soul that sins that will die. Did that sacrament, will little Olivia save her? No. What that sacrament signifies, the reality of God saying, the promises are for you and for your children. The warnings and the blessing of the covenant. The thing itself that is signified must mean more to us than the sign itself. How many an expensive engagement ring failed to produce a wonderful marriage. So this morning as we think about the Jew holding on to this. We're just going to work through these few verses looking at what I call the con, the consequences, and the cure. The con in verse 25. Going back to this idea, you call yourself a Jew. The con is, I have been circumcised, therefore I am good. The Mishnah, the second century uh, it's a published work of the oral tradition of all the rabbis. It comes out in the second century. Here are a couple quotes from the Mishnah. Circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. Uh, that, was the, um, that was the word for hell. Circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. There was, in some sense, an almost superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. Now this message has been heavy. Here's a little levity. Nacho Libre? Nacho Libre, if you haven't seen it, you gotta see it. Beautiful, sweet story. Jack Black pays a, uh, a priest, or he wants to be a priest, but he just never can get there. And, and, and it's all, it's this sacramental thing. So he goes to do last rites when somebody finds out the person's alive, right? Then he partners with a guy, and they're, they're luchadors together, wrestling. And then he finds out, Ignatio, how come you have not been baptized, he says. 
And so what does he do? He sneaks up and secretly baptizes him. Right? He goes, ka-chow! And he grabs his head and puts it in the water. Right? Uh, if you've seen it, you, you see it, and we laugh about it. But what's he saying? What's he doing? He's thinking, I'm so worried that you haven't had this sacrament done. If I can even force it on you or trick you, then you're saved. I, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that sometimes in our culture, that sinner's prayer and that walk the aisle is almost treated in that same way. I remember going to a place once when, when I was about 16. My uncle had some special preacher. And I mean, it was as if if you didn't walk down that aisle, no matter how many times you'd walked down it before, if you didn't walk down while he was preaching, you might not be good. And so I remember he was going through all these lists of people. And then he says... If you're in college, come on down. I was like, okay, I'm in college. <laughs> I walked down the aisle. My uncle's like, did you just get saved? I'm like, no, I, I've, I've been saved. He just said, if you're in college, come on down. I don't know. I mean, I just like, I, I didn't want to lie to the guy. But sometimes we treat it in that way. Right? And we force and we push. Uh, that's why the Sunday school class that Scotty's doing on the order of salvation is so important. Where does regeneration, where does salvation happen? Who is responsible? What do we hang our hats on? On this day when I walked down the aisle, on this day when I said this prayer, on this day when I was baptized, or do I rest it upon Christ and his work alone? So there was, in a sense, this con. You have been circumcised. You are good to go. Now, I would say in our culture today, it would be hard for us to find common ground on that. If, if we asked a person, what makes you think you're going to be okay with God? Some might actually say, I, I was baptized. I prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, I belong to this church. I don't think many people would say, it's because I'm white almost sounds that way when the Jew when, when we read it doesn't it? I'm I am a Jew I, I'm I'm a part of this chosen race you know what I think it would be today it's how I feel about myself I feel I'm going to be saved from God's wrath because I think about myself in a way that doesn't deserve God's wrath. I've tried to be a good person. And I think that that's, that's what makes some of these teachings difficult. A person looks at, at God Almighty and then they compare themselves to these awful people over here and they're like, I, I think I'm going to be okay. What, whatever or however you answer that question, it points to what you trust. And what happens today is if you don't like what one church is telling you, you'll find a new religion or a new brand of spirituality that will confirm, yes, you're okay. What he says here is circumcision minus obedience is just like uncircumcision. Uncircumcision plus obedience 
is just like circumcision. And so obviously he is speaking spiritual matters, and it was even spiritual in the Old Testament. Right? That's why I had Bo read from Deuteronomy. Right? In the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to circumcise your heart. Right? Doesn't mean he's going to reach in, pull out a beating heart, cut off a piece of it, and put it back in. Right? It's a spiritual term. I am going to cut away from your hearts what is sinful and of the flesh, and I will replace it. But what do you substitute for circumcision? You know, it's great this is Reformation Sunday because it points out why the Reformation was necessary. The Roman Catholic Church had elevated sacraments to being what saves people and what keeps people saved. There was a whole system of sacraments. It, it's what got you into the kingdom. It's what kept you out of purgatory and out of hell. It was you doing these rites. And it put salvation perseverance, glorification, all of that stuff on the believer. What are the consequences? In our text, what are the consequences? There's at least three, uh, and I'll go through these quickly. There are at least three consequences, picking up at verse 26, 28. So if you believe in anything other than this finished work of Jesus Christ is going to hold you uh, close to the Father, is going to have you not just avoid his wrath, but receive his adoption. These are the consequences. First of all, he says the uncircumcised lawkeeper will judge you. Now, again, for the Jew, if you take the context of last week, they're going to be the ones, they saw themselves, we are the nation that's going to judge everyone else. We are God's people, right? Someone will cry out. Ten men will say, grab a hold of this Jew for God's with him, right? That's how they saw themselves. They're just now stepping into the twilight zone, right? They're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. What are you saying? Are you saying a, a Gentile who gives their heart to the living God who trusts in Jesus, they're going to stand as judge over us? All right, let me take this wedding ring illustration one step further. If I go to Vegas or wherever and I'm wearing that ring and I fall into the various temptations that await me there, those without the ring are going to judge me. They're going to say, well, yeah, I've fallen into this. I've done this. But at least I'm not a married guy. It's that same manner. The apostle is saying, oh, you, Jew, you have this sign about you. Everything about you, when you walk down the street, everything about you says, we have been chosen and blessed by God. The outside world is looking on you and saying, show us what that looks like to be a member of the family of God. Show us what that looks like. Wait a minute. You think it was because you were so great and wonderful? You're going to be judged by the uncircumcised. Now, now, more than just Paul says this, Jesus says this. He says, woe to you if, if the works that were done in Sodom and Gomorrah were done for you. Those people are going to, on the day of judgment, judge you. That's what he's saying here. Secondly, very bluntly in verse 28, you're not really a true Jew. 
oh, you have circumcision and the bloodline and you eat the right foods and you wear the right things. But all of this is to direct your heart. Your heart is away from me. It's like you're going to be judged by the uncircumcised and you're not truly a Jew. And then thirdly, your circumcision doesn't count. Now next week we'll get into the, the, their response which is right. What value is it then? Why do we even have it? We'll get into that. But the apostle is saying, if you elevate the thing, if you elevate the symbol. And again, I'll just tell you, as a guy who does lots of weddings, there are times when there is so much work done on the wedding and the ceremony and the beauty and all that stuff. And I'll sit with a couple and I'll say, now let's talk about your vows. And they'll say, well, whatever ones you use normally. I, I like to use these normally, but before God and these witnesses, you two need to read over them. You're holding yourself accountable. It's more than a mortgage you're signing. You need to read over these things. You need to treat this as, as the important, this, this as the, the focus and the core, not how beautiful all that is, and it should be beautiful. It should be wonderful. It should be a huge celebration. But what are you focusing on? Your circumcision, he says, it doesn't count. But then he gives us a picture of the cure here in verse 29. Uh, there is the, your, your Jew inwardly circumcision is to be a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. The letter of the law directs us to the spirit of God. The letter directs and the spirit circumcises. You know, it's always been this way with our God. Leviticus 26. If they confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery they've committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and I brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. In Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord has set his heart on you and your fathers. He chose their offspring above all peoples. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What is the cure? For this disunion. It is to cry out to the Holy Spirit. It is to cry out to the Lord. And say Father. Send your spirit to circumcise my heart. And continue to circumcise my heart. Continue to wrestle with my affections. Father it may be that you have to point out. All of these other false saviors. And things I was holding on to. And cut them away. It, we, we, we long for something physical in our lives. Right? We do. We, we long for a date, a time. That, that's, 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 what, that's what we are. That's who we are. A tattoo or something that, that's, that's permanent that says, This I know. I belong to Christ because of this. And yet, 
the assurance we get is from his spirit. We absolutely treat our sacraments as they are meant to be. They are a sign and they are a seal of God's covenant. We celebrate communion every week because we need to be fed on the reality of what this sacrament points to. The union we have with what this sacrament signifies and what actually it is. It signifies to us our very life existence eternity depends on what Jesus has done. We'll never go beyond it. We'll never move beyond it. It will always be so. His body is given in place of our body. I eat the bread. It stays bread. It is a piece of bread. Our bread has no gluten in it. I don't think they worried about it back then, but we have evolved as we have, and we have to worry about gluten. Our bread stays bread. But there is this mystical union between us and the sacrament where we are fed in our souls and our hearts. Christ is sufficient. You stand in him, O beloved. This cup, wine or grape juice, depending on your choice, remains wine or grape juice. It doesn't turn into his blood. It tells us in our souls that Christ's blood flowed on our behalf. So it is one of the reasons why we fence our table. It's one of the reasons why I invite people. And I also say, if this is you, don't take. It, it, part of it is to avoid hypocrisy. I don't want to make hypocrites out of people thinking, uh, well, everybody's going to judge me if I don't do this. Um, but, but also, our God looks down upon you. He says you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You are treating the thing as if it was the actual. And so sometimes people don't like it that we, we ask children, you know, children not to come to the table until they've made a profession of faith. Well, it's because there's a warning. There's a warning in Scripture. Don't eat in an unworthy manner. Discern, understand the body and the blood. Therefore, you don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But, but, but again, the, the Christian holds the sacramental union close to their hearts. Um, and it's why we do it every week. Part of it is because I got to plant this church and I need it every week. I need to walk away from this place nourished. Every week that I stand before God, I avoid his wrath. I receive his benefits and his blessings because Christ's physical body punishment that my physical body needed because Christ's blood flowed where my blood needed to flow and by faith in him I receive these benefits I think it's interesting at the conclusion of this text uh, to look as I put in the notes on the screen contrasting verse 29b with 24 uh, so think about it. Uh, last week we talked about you who call yourself a Jew. So there was a lot that went into that meaning, that word Jew. Um, as Jacob is dying, he looks at Judah and he says, Judah, you are the one whom your brothers will praise and from you shall come the Messiah. Even Leah, as, as he is born, as uh, Judah is born, the fourth son of Leah in Genesis 29, she conceived and she bore a son. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. 
It's a beautiful story if you look at the names of Leah's sons. She, every son she had, she thought, my husband will finally love me. I brought him a son. My husband will finally love me. I brought him a son. Now my husband will take notice of me. I brought him a son. She gets to son number four, and she's like, no, I don't need my husband's praise. Now I will praise the Lord. So Judah is where we get the name Jew. That's how it came from. Uh, Jew. And so he says, you call yourself Jew, right? That word Jew, that name Jew was to mean praise God, right? Last week they took such, such assurance in being a Jew that he says, you call yourself a Jew, but actually rather than the Jew producing God's praise, the Jew is producing blasphemy. And that's where we left last week, and then it comes to this. But now his praise is not from man, but from God. How wonderful. Our God is praised when we take a hold of what Christ has won. Our God is praised when we say, There is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress helpless fly to thee for grace all of Christ given to you through faith and God is praised let's pray father we thank you for the clarity of your word and we pray father that the words of my mouth uh, father that they will bring your people myself into greater understanding and gratitude for the saving continuing saving persevering work of Christ on our behalf Set these elements apart, Father, for holy use as we eat this bread. Oh, Father, will you confirm in our very bodies that Christ is not just sufficient. Oh, but Christ has received blessing and adoration. And that we have received what he has won, being declared righteous and being promised our glorification. May we receive it with faith. May it encourage our hearts. May the cup, Father, may it stand in direct opposition to the accuser of the brethren who longs to point out our failures and our shortcomings. May we not deny them, but may we point to the blood of Christ. And we say, look what my Savior has done to erase my sin and guilt. And may we in faith live joyful lives as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.